Well, get comfortable and turn to Isaiah 65. Isaiah chapter 65. In verse 17, Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. New Jerusalem will be the most beautiful city ever seen or experienced. New Jerusalem, its expanse, its atmosphere, its architecture, even its building materials are all there to reflect unparalleled beauty. The most costly commodities in our world, gold and precious stones, pearl, these things are pavement, gates, and walls. And again, it is all designed for one purpose, one purpose alone. Yes, we will dwell there. Yes, we will rejoice in Jerusalem. Yes, we will be there. Yes, it will be home to us. But the purpose, the singular purpose is to magnify the glory of God. New Jerusalem is like a big, huge, cubicle magnifying glass of glory. And God will dwell there. His Spirit will be there. The the Father, the Almighty, and the Lamb will be there. The glory will just shine out. New earth will not need a sun or a moon or stars in the sky because New Jerusalem's there. And the light alone will be dramatic. Even its dimensions reflect the glory of God. Did you think about this last week? That we saw, and you can skip back over to Revelation 22. Actually, go to Revelation 21 and look at verse 16, where we read a week ago, the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards. And the glory of God is written into the dimensions of New Jerusalem. What are you you talking about? 1,500 miles is 12,000 stadia. 72 yards is 144,000 cubits. 12,000? 144,000? Does that sound at all familiar to you Bible students? Back in Revelation chapter 7, verse 4, we read, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. From every tribe of the sons of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000. And Reuben, 12,000. Gad, 12,000. Asher, 12,000. And on and on he goes, 144,000, 12,000. This is right in the measurements of New Jerusalem. The holy city bears the dimensions of God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to Israel as proven out from the moment he said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in and through you. And God is faithful even to this final design. Psalm 98 verse 1 says, Sing to the Lord a new song for He has done wonderful things. 
His right hand, His holy arm, have gained the victory for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His loving kindness or grace and His faithfulness to the house of Israel and all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And I ask you, what other city but New Jerusalem has faithfulness built in? Even in its very measurements. Well, we continue tonight in New Jerusalem, picking up in chapter 22, verse 1, then He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. Prophet Isaiah said in chapter 12, verse 3, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. In John 4, 14, Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And Revelation 21, verse 6, remember what Jesus said? I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And here it is, a river. It's a river of the water of life. Please hear me, this is a real river. This is no allegory, though it's picturesque. This is no metaphor, though it's incredibly symbolic. But it's an actual, eternal river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Why do people have to allegorize these things? Why do we take these amazing eternal realities and say, eh, that can't be literal? That's got to be kind of a spiritual picture of something flowing. I I don't understand. And and what happens when we make allegory where allegory is never intended? Where we make metaphor where metaphor is not the idea? We try to make something symbolic that is never meant to be symbolic. What happens is we pull our biblical punches. It doesn't really mean that. He didn't really create the world in six days. And I don't know why. Is it fear? Is it that we're afraid we're going to look foolish if proven wrong? Hey, if the Word of God says it, no worries. When we allegorize things, we, we cave in and we cop out before the enemy. We say, okay, I'll give up some ground. Don't give up biblical ground. Don't give up on the truth. The truth is as vital as the grace of God itself. Don't give it up. Don't undermine. Don't reject what is here clearly the Lord's intended blessings. You see, rivers in the Bible speak of blessing. They are a picture of blessing. Real, actual, flowing rivers, just as this real, actual, flowing river in real, actual New Jerusalem is going to be a marvelous blessing. But rivers speak of this. They indicate this. God blessed humanity with a river from the very start, flowing right out of the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. Won't be long, Lord willing, before we're there. Although I hope we're not, but you know, we may get there. In our study. But that river, God started the whole thing with a river. And that river flowed out. It, it fed the fertile crescent. 
I mean, even the scientists of the world and, and the secular world recognizes there's a fertile crescent, there's a place, a beginning point on planet Earth where, where everything seems to draw back to that place, the fertile crescent, the cradle of civilization where fresh waters roll and blessings flow. God did that. Psalm 36 verse 8 says, They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. You know what the word delights is? Adanya. It's Adanya. It's meaning what? Well, we have a little girl in our fellowship named Adanya. I thought that was cool. But, but Adanya is simply a variation. It's the plural noun form of Eden. It's Eden. You give them to drink of the river of your Eden. Eden means delights. It means pleasures. And in the Bible, rivers speak of just that. Blessing and pleasure. Three things, if you want to note these, you can jot these down. Rivers indicate gladness. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. People are happy by the river. They're glad by the waters as they flow. Psalm 46, verse 4, by the way, is that verse. A river whose streams make glad the city of God. And the word glad is shamach in Hebrew. And it means rejoicing. It means they bring joy. Rivers bring joy. With the refreshing cold water rushing through them. And God's Spirit is the source of this gladness. Uh, of a river from the Lord that comes of the Holy Spirit. And I am getting symbolic right here, but rivers symbolize, indicate, portray for us gladness and joy. And from the Spirit of the Lord comes that gladness, joy, laughter, happiness. The very ability to rejoice or feel joy, it all comes from Him. So next time you crack up, thank God. Next time you laugh about something or find something humorous, Praise the Lord. You wouldn't if not for Jesus. I mean, something as basic and simple as joy, you would not know if God hadn't created it, hadn't caused it to flow into this world like rivers of delight. Thank God. But joy, gladness is far more than a trivial joke. Talking about real gladness. Gladness that comes not in the moment, but it comes by and of His righteousness. See, that's another thing rivers indicate in the Bible. Righteousness. They portray for us gladness. They remind us of the flowing righteousness of God. Isaiah 48, 18. If you had only paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Gladness and righteousness? See, the happiness of the world is not righteous. The happiness of the world fades quickly. It doesn't last. It doesn't work. The gladness and the joy of the Lord, that comes of His righteousness. It comes of what is true and right, of what's correct and absolute. That's where there's real joy. Amos chapter 5, verse 24, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Refreshes, it cools, it brings joy. And the blessings of God are deep and they are rich because they are always right. When God blesses, it's always right. It's never the deceit or the falsehood of the world in which we live. 
And the river currents that flow, they, they bring along gladness and righteousness. And rivers also indicate, number three, peace. Peace. Listen to Isaiah 48, verse 18 again. If you had only paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river. But the phrase well-being is shalom. Your shalom would be like a river if you obey me, if you trust me, if you lean not on your own understanding, if you'll trust my righteousness, then you're going to have peace. If you ignore my righteousness, if you do it your way, if you avoid what I'm telling you, the Lord would say, you're going to have trouble when it comes to peace. You're going to be stressed. You're going to be worried. You're going to not... Well, you're not going to have peace. You want peace? It comes of righteousness. You want gladness? It comes of righteousness. These things flow together. Isaiah 66, verse 12, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream and her is new Jerusalem. I give her peace. So even as you read of this actual, literal, real river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming down from the throne of God and the Lamb, yes, it will be there. Yes, you will see it. Yeah, you're going to drink from it. But it also, it symbolizes for us, it reminds us of the peace of God and the righteousness of God and the gladness of God that will be in New Jerusalem. By the way, have you noticed this? In Revelation 21 and 22, Jesus is there. The Alpha and the Omega, the Lamb, He is named, He is pointed to, He is present. God is present. As we'll see in a few minutes here, remarkable, we'll see His face, God's face. God the Father. Who no man can look at it live. Well, that's not a problem. We will have already died to self and lived and we're alive in Christ. And we're going to see His face. But God's there. God the Father, Christ the Son, the Lamb. Where's the Holy Spirit? Not a single mention of the Holy Spirit in Revelation 1 and 2. Or 21, sorry. 21 and 20. He's mentioned in 1 and 2. 21 and 22. So what's going on? Is He absent? Is He not there? Hey, there's a river here. There is a river. And the Spirit is often portrayed by fresh water in the Bible. Wait, Rick, are you saying that this river, the water of life, is the Holy Spirit? No, I'm not. But there's a river here. (laughs) What are you saying, Rick? Go all the way back to the beginning. Think about for a moment the connection of the Spirit of God and water. Think this with me. Where was the Spirit of God at the beginning? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. First time we hear of waters is in conjunction with the Spirit. That's interesting. The Spirit is moving. This word moving, I love the word. It's marachapet. And marachapet is... is Literally fluttering, hovering like a bird. The picture is, is 
a mother bird hovering over her young. In fact, the same exact word is used in Deuteronomy 32.11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spreads his wing, wings and caught them, and he carried them on his pinions. What I'm saying to you, and this is a preview of our Genesis study, but Genesis 1-2 indicates it to us that this is no detached Creator God. This is a God who's hovering over His creation. Who, who is fluttering near, like a mother bird looking over this, thinking it through, moving upon the waters. It's not like mythological Zeus or the gods of Olympus throwing down lightning and tipping back drink while the creation is exploding. And ha- that, that, That's not the thing. This is, this is the intentional intimacy of God to His creation from the start. His Spirit is fluttering. Hovering. But his spirit moves even closer than that. Ezekiel 36 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This promise, my friends, remains simply a promise. Ezekiel spoke it. And it was just that, a promise. It was a wonderful promise, a beautiful promise, but just a promise until Jesus called for its imminent fulfillment. I will put my spirit in you. And the day that it happened, well, every morning of the Feast of Sukkot for seven days, the priests had a little ritual that they carried out. They walked with pitcher, a gold pitcher. They marched down from the temple down to the pool of Siloam in the city of David. And there at the spring of Gihon, they would dip that golden pitcher in the water and with joyful singing they would march right back up to the temple and they would take, as they sang, they would take and pour the water into a silver chalice on the west side of the altar at the temple of God to commemorate God's provision. And while they did this, as they poured, they sang, I'll read it to you, Isaiah 12, verse 2, Behold, my God is my salvation, and I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, make them remember that His name is exalted. And they would sing this song. And every morning, you know, those early birds would show up at temple and march down to the spring of Gihon. And down they would go and dip that golden pitcher and up they would take it and pour it in singing Isaiah 12, singing out the words of this song for seven days in a row. On day eight, they made the same trek. It's called the great day of the Feast of Sukkot. The the great day, they would come down with that gold pitcher to the spring and they would feign dipping it in, but they wouldn't actually dip it in. And they carried that empty pitcher back up to the temple mount, up to the temple, and there they poured nothing into the silver chalice. What was the point of that? The last day was not commemoration for God's provision. It was anticipation for what was about to come. It was looking forward to the water of life, to the spirit of the water of life. And if you look ahead in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, For I will pour out water on the thirsty, or literally on him who is thirsty, 
and streams upon the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And day eight commemorated that, anticipated that, expected that, looked forward to it. But it was on day eight, the great day of the feast. At this precise moment, a voice rose out of the crowd, the voice of Jesus saying, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Man, his timing was perfect. I can have some pretty bad timing from time to time. Especially when it comes to jokes, puns, and humor. (laughs) Jesus never was ill-timed. He was always spot on in the moment. And as they're pouring that empty pitcher, and nothing's coming out of it, and people are going, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's speaking of, he's going to pour out his spirit. I don't know how that's going to work. Hey, hey y'all. If this was in Texas. Hey, if you're thirsty... Come to me and drink. If you believe in me, he who believes in me from his innermost. Now, hold on to that thought. Six months later at Passover, Jesus looks around at his disciples around the table, the 11 that were left. And he says, John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, a parakletos, that he may be with you. Anyone know how long? For Ever. Forever. That is the Spirit of truth, who the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Where is the Holy Spirit in New Jerusalem? In you. He's there because you're there. And you can't show me a single verse in all the Bible. And trust me, I've looked. Not a single scripture that indicates once we've received the Helper forever, He departs. Brothers and sisters, once you have received the Holy Spirit, He will never leave. He is absolutely present in New Jerusalem because because you are. Because the church is there. Jesus, in His own words, said He will be with you forever. The river from the throne in New Jerusalem. That's a real river. But hey, it reminds me right now that the Spirit of God who will be present in and among all of us at that time is present in and among His people right now. Right now. Are you familiar with the flow of the Spirit? Do you know the Spirit of God in your life? I'll tell you what, if this is something absent from your theology or missing, you need to get baptized in the Spirit. And I mean now. And if you want to understand that more, what exactly does that mean? That sounds so Pentecostal. Well, it happened on Pentecost first time, but, but don't let that mess you up. You want to know more about the Spirit of God and what Jesus coined as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, all you've got to do is ask. Ask Him first. Come and talk to me or... Talk to Les. He'll talk your ear off. (laughs) But the Spirit, don't wait for the Spirit. Don't put off. Well, if there is an outpouring of the Spirit, well, maybe something. Why? 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 Why are we waiting? When we can be washed and overflowed and have the consistent helper of God with us, in us, through us now, quenching thirst, encouraging in our difficulties. 
Spirit of the living God like a river moving in and among His people forever. Forever. And it continues in verse 2. I said get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. On either side of the river was a tree. The tree of life. Remember the tree of life? Last time we saw it was in Eden. Well, now it's been transplanted to New Jerusalem. There was the tree of life. John says, I saw it bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Now note this, it's not a different kind of fruit every month. It's 12 kinds of fruit that's yielded every single month. So you don't like this kind? Well, there's that kind. And it's all on the same tree, and it's all growing, and it's yielding, and, it, and, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, if you think this through and put it together, this indicates to us there is a national system in eternity. And we hinted at this, looked at this a little bit last week, but he says that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So, in my simplistic thinking, there will be nations into eternity. I'm not talking about New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem is New Jerusalem. There are going to be nations on New Earth. Who's going to be there? What's it going to look like? I don't know. But they're going to be there. Nations. And on top of that, we have a... There's going to be a new system of time. See, time itself is a created thing, right? When, when God said there was evening and there was morning, one day the clock started ticking. But, but that's a created thing. And He's going to destroy all the creation and He's going to create new, a brand new. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. And now there's going to be a new frame of time. How do you know there's time? Because, because the tree is bearing and yielding its fruit every month. So, so we've got a monthly calendar. So I don't know exactly how many months are going to be in the eternal calendar. 14 billion? I don't know. And a year has passed? Wow, time just flew by on that one. But there will be a time system here. And then this sweet promise of 12 kinds of fruit that makes my mouth water when I think about it, all from the tree of life on both banks of the river, which is good news because we still get to eat. Yeah. Fructose, baby, bring it on. And, and you can eat anytime you want, whatever you want. And as you're eating, understand it will always be fresh. It will always be in season. It's not like the pathetic, scrawny Washington apples that we're having right now. And wait till October before they get big and fat and juicy again. Little wormy things. Fruit. And you'll eat this. But John says, but the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Leaves for healing. Brian Regan, the comedian, likes to talk about his childhood a lot. And he shared one time that his mother would send the kids out into the yard to find an activity. Parents, you need to do this more often. Go outside. Once they go out the door, lock it. So he said, we would go outside and we'd just come up with stuff, you know. He said, you know, like we'd stare at the sun as long as we can. I got six seconds on the sun stare, you know. And he says, we make bike ramps, get a big block of cement, put a piece of wood on it, send a kid going down the hill at 100 miles an hour, they hit the ramp, and that's as far as we planned. He would land on a mailbox, be all sideways, you know, he'd be laying out, and all of a sudden you got nine junior paramedics running around this kid, and you're like, get some leaves! Did you ever do that as kids? So that's what we did. Someone gets hurt, get leaves! Why? I don't know. 
We don't have band-aids. You know? You got to look this up on YouTube. Brian Regan, he kills me. It's hilarious. Kid goes running into the house. One kid gets chosen to tell mom. Hey, mom, remember Billy? <laughs> remember how his arm used to go this way? Yeah, he's not doing that right now. See, when we were thinking out here, we, we put our heads, we were thinking maybe you should take him to the, you know, the emergency room. <laughs> Leaves for healing. In New Jerusalem? I thought there were no tears or death or mourning or crying or pain. Why do we need leaves for healing? You need to understand that this is not healing from brokenness or sorrow or disease or death. This is therapeutic. In fact, the word healing there is therapia. It's therapy. And the kind of healing described here, and this, this word therapia, this is what Jesus did. So when Jesus healed someone, the word therapia is used. There's also another word for healing in the Greek. That's used often. But therapia can either mean healing from sickness or disease, or it can mean health and maintenance of health and invigoration. And interestingly, therapia can also mean like a servant of the household. Like a therapist. I'm not talking about a psych doctor. I'm I'm talking about someone who, you know, runs the household spa. Who offers that kind of therapy. In, In the millennial kingdom, we have a similar picture. And this is actual and real. In the thousand year reign of Christ, Ezekiel 47 verse 12 says, By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Not the tree of life. But all kinds of trees. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail and they will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So in the millennial kingdom, we have these healing leaves and this fresh fruit and this river flowing from the temple. And it's a very similar picture. It's a sneak preview of coming attractions in New Jerusalem, which will be far better. But there in the millennial kingdom, same thing. Leaves for healing, but it's just, it's a foretaste. You might say a foretaste of glory divine. We know this fact in New Jerusalem because Jesus told us there is no pain, sickness, death, sorrow, any of that, all that stuff, no tears. It's all gone for eternity. Therefore, the therapia here, these leaves must refer to maintenance of health. The word also can indicate exhilaration, invigoration. Think of the leaves as all-natural, international super vitamins, and you're probably on the right course. And I don't know, how is this going to work? How does, you know, healing, therapy for the nations. I don't know if if the leaves somehow are going to be part and parcel of maintaining peace on the new earth. I don't know. Maintaining connection with people and and prosperity among nations and peoples, I don't know. But I'll tell you this, right now compare it to the devil's counterfeit. See, the counterfeit of Satan right now is pharmakia. It's drugs. And or witchcraft. And it's stuff to mute pain and to numb pain or to make us forget pain. And it does nothing therapeutic. When you come down off a hit of whatever drug, you come down and hard. Right back into reality. That's what Satan offers. 
Having a tough day? Pharmacia. Drug it up. Uncertain of your life? Go see a, a tarot card reader. It'll, it'll take care of you. This, this will work. And, and, and for a moment, it may seem to. But you come down hard. Jesus doesn't offer pharmacia. He offers therapia. A maintaining, a maintaining health where the devil says, I got drugs and death for you. Jesus has health and life. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Can I ask you, why wouldn't anybody choose life? When really standing face to face with the alternatives, and the book of Revelation has so marvelously shown us the alternatives, why would you not choose life? And if you're waffling on these things here tonight, why would you not choose life? Death, destruction, and drugs. Life and health and a holy therapy that is eternal. So the leaves are therapeutic. They're revitalizing. They're life-giving. Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. Well, there you go. Curse is gone. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. And they will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. First of all, understand the curse of sin is gone. I mean, it is gone. Even on your best day, when you can say, I don't think I sinned today. You probably did, but I don't think. I think today was pretty good. Even on that day, the curse of sin is still affecting your life. It's still impacting you. Your body is still in decay. Even when you've had a great day. And the world is still going on. And the curse of sin is still happening. And you're still going to hear the siren going down the street. And you're still going to turn on the TV and, and quickly turn it off. And all these things are still happening on your best day because we still live in the society of the curse of sin. In a world that has become saturated by the curse of sin. The curse of sin is gone. It is gone. No longer any curse. And along with it, all sorrow and suffering, which the curse of sin is the source of all sorrow and suffering, it's gone. And here, while we see the tree of life, note what we don't see, we don't see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know the one Adam and Eve ate from, violating the only law in the Garden of Eden? One law. One law. Every time we come back to that, it still stuns me. One law. I got one rule for you kids. Leave that tree alone. See all the rest? Go eat. Don't eat that one. Straight to the tree. And it's not there. It's not even present. Why not? Because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is obsolete. We don't need it. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8 says, Love never fails. If there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. Why? We don't need anyone to tell us what's coming. We're already in it. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it'll be done away. (laughs) Kids, no more school. You're welcome. For we know in part. Stephen Hawking knows this much. Knew this much. Knows a lot more now. We know in part. 
But when the and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, <laughs> partial's done away. We don't need the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because we know it. And it's also not present because God Himself is there. Again, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. God's residency, His presence in New Jerusalem. And His bondservants will serve Him. And they will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And it's probably... It probably is a literal mark of his name. I have a feeling there's going to be some kind of really... If you're you're into tattoos now, leave it alone because you're going to get the coolest. (laughs) Yahweh. I don't know what it's going to be. Adonai. (laughs) But the, the point is whether or not it's a literal mark is that it implies that God will be on our minds always. We're always going to be thinking about His name. It's going to be front and center because His throne is front and center. Jeremiah 31-34, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know Me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. And where there is no remembrance of sin, there is nothing but pure relationship. I'll know them, they'll know Me. By the way, we're still bondservants. If you're hoping to get out of that line of work, in the house of God, in the household of New Jerusalem, we're two things. We are servants and we are sons of the house. We talked about sonship, our inherited sonship on Sunday. We're servants and sons of the house. How can we be both? Listen, sons speaks of our position, our inheritance, our rights, even our authority in the house. We are sons of God. Romans eight seventeen, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. We're sons. That's positionally. But we are servants purposefully. See, we're not the sons in the house that are sitting around watching TV all day on Saturday. You know, laying on the couch with chips on our stomachs and a Coke nearby, just wasting away. That's... No, we're sons with a purpose. We're servants. We'll have the pleasure of serving at His good pleasure. And when we're called bond servants of God in New Jerusalem, I mean, the joy in just being able to serve Him. Remember the prodigal? Comes home in Jesus' parable. And what does he want? Nothing more than just to be a servant in the house. Because my servants eat better than the pigs. So make, make me a servant. Father, I just want to be... And his father's like, forget you that. My son's home. So his son is home. Guess what? Son comes home and now has joyful responsibilities in the house of God. And we will in New Jerusalem. And better than all that, fellow sons and servants, we will finally see God's face. Man, to see our Father is the cry of the human heart. Some have had a horrible relationship with a father. Some have never known a father. Some have wondered what's it like to have true father love. And you know what? If you have the best father-child relationship in the world, it does not compare, it doesn't come close to what you're about to have with the father. You're going to see his face. It's what we long for. Psalm 17:15 as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. 
Which is remarkable to me because I ain't righteous in and of myself. But I'm going to look upon Him as a righteous being, having been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. I'm going to stand there and look full on at the face of my Father God. Remember in John 14, verse 8, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Why does He say that? Because we all want to see our Father. We all want to know our Father. Show us the Father, Lord. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Here I am. Here I am. But in New Jerusalem, while we will see Jesus the Lamb, we will also see Father God present there on the throne. Amazing. Verse 5. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Servants who are reigning. So, sons of inheritance, reigning, serving at the pleasure of God. And there's no nights, daytime, all day long, which will make my grandson Silas so happy. No bedtime? No bedtime? Play with Silas? I mean, that's all he can think about. Have to go to bed? Play with Silas. No night, only day. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message we've heard from Him and announced to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. Which of course indicates that God is full on illumination and warmth. There's no darkness where God is. He's just bright light and warmth. But also with that, with the brightness, with the light comes clarity and understanding. And and openness? You realize that there's not going to be such a thing as a dysfunctional family in New Jerusalem? Which if you've had a family more than a year and a half, you can say, praise the Lord. Because we all have dysfunctional families. Welcome to the club, folks. Well, my family... Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You may not know because you're dysfunctional, but we all know. But with the Father, and in New Jerusalem, no darkness, no hidden stuff, no beating around the bush, openness, relationship. John says in 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We're playing games with God, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. And in verse 6, And He said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place. Who's speaking here? Behold, He says, I am coming quickly. This is Jesus. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Amos chapter 3 verse 7 says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret counsel to His servants, the prophets. And I love how Jesus puts this. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place. Why does He say that? What's this spirits of the prophets? 
My friends, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, is a statement that validates that His Word is faithful and true. Jesus is drawing back across all history and all prophecy saying, look, you know all this stuff came true. Same God who now declares to you that these things must soon take place. I love the second half. Let me add this verse in here. Amos chapter 3 verse 7 says, The Lord does nothing unless He reveals His secret counsel to His servants, the prophets. Verse 8, A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Isaiah, he didn't have a choice. I'm not saying he was strong-armed. I'm just saying when you hear God speak, you have to share what God said. Jeremiah, he couldn't help but share the words of God. Peter and John, standing before the Sanhedrin, we command you, they say, never to speak again in this name. And they say, we can't help talking about what we've seen and heard. God of the Spirit of the prophets has spoken through. And when you hear God, you cannot help but speak. And His words, His words are faithful and true. And we're reading this right now while we're still watching prophecy fulfilled. But when we get to this point, arrival at New Jerusalem, standing there, and for Jesus to say, the God of the spirits of the prophets, this is the deal. All that was prophesied that has come to pass and been proven true, listen, this is the same God who's telling you right now, it's all good. And tonight, He's telling you and He's telling me these things must soon take place. I have to tell you, these things must soon take place. I have to tell you, behold, Jesus is coming quickly. I have to tell you, because God said so. Well... John wrote that 2,000 years ago. Right? Coming quickly. Soon take place. He's coming in a taxi. Okay? And we've talked about this. Soon and quickly are the noun and the adjective, adjective forms of in taxi or taxus. The word which means with suddenness. I'm coming suddenly. I'm coming quickly. Or, or with progression of speed. That is, things are going to speed up. As I'm coming, it's going to come faster and faster like a tachometer in your car revs up RPMs, revolutions per minute. Anyone not believe things are speeding up? Do I even have to go into trying to prove that to you? That things are moving faster in this world than they have ever moved before? Sin, sin is just exploding. Oh, sin has always been here. Mankind has always had the deep capacity to commit vile and horrific sin. But the embrace in this culture and around the world, literally worldwide, you can't even say, well, that culture is especially sinful. No, it's just it's on the World Wide Web. Do we even call it that anymore? Worldwide. It's on the net. It's all over the place. And it's every nation embracing these unbelievable embrace of sin. Things are speeding up. Do you live in the urgency of His soon return? Do you live in the urgency of His soon return? Do you allow yourself to think it could be tonight? 
makes me uncomfortable. I know. Sometimes me too. Other times I wish it was yesterday. Or the day before. Would it be even better? Do you live with that urgency of His soon return? 1 Corinthians 1.6 Paul said the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you're not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, James says, chapter 5, verse 7, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. What does the farmer do in his patience? He doesn't sit around. He's looking for it. He's anticipating harvest. He's waiting for it. It's active waiting for the coming of the Lord is near. And John says in 1 John 3, 3, And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. An active, urgent waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus will purify your life. And by the way, I think it's a lifestyle decision for Christians to anticipate and be expectant to the coming of the Lord Jesus. It changes us. It makes you see the world completely differently. It makes you hunger and thirst for righteousness all the more. Well, verse 8, keeping going. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. I love that he puts his name to it. Do Do you put your name to your faith? Are you willing to wear your faith on your sleeve? Are you willing to own your Christian faith? To say, yeah, I'm one of them. I'm not only a Christian... I'm a radical, end times, pre-tribulation, pre-millennial nutcase. (laughs) I am radical for Jesus. You sign your name to that? John does. The beginning and the end of the letter, he makes sure that everyone knows, I heard this, I saw this, I believe this. And he says, and when I heard and I saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Johnny! (laughs) But he said to me, do not do that! I can just see the face of the angel. I mean, now this is the second time, right? John falls down to worship and the angel's like, no, don't do that! Don't do that! I didn't tell him to do that! (laughs) Not my fault! (laughs) Don't do that, he says. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. And the angel says, worship God. Worship God. This, this angel has been mostly silent, by the way. If you think about it, we really haven't heard the angel speaking to John. Jesus has spoken directly to John. And we've heard the other angels, you know, the, the seventh angel with the bowl poured it out, showed John the bride. Hey, come here, I want to show you something. The elders speak to John. Lots of people are talking to John. Lots of angels and elders and, and Jesus himself. But this particular angel doesn't say a whole lot till now. And back in chapter 19, verse 10, when he told John, don't do that the first time, he didn't really talk about it. He's more of a guide. He's alongside. He's walking John through these things. But make no mistake, when it's Jesus talking, it's Jesus talking. And John hears from all these others, but this this silent angel guides him. And and here for the second time again, and with all seriousness, John falls prey to his natural man and he goes down to worship. What do you mean? I mean it is natural for us to want to worship someone we deem higher than ourselves. Uh, be it a being, uh, another human being, 
spirit of some kind, someone that's, that we look, we have this baked in desire to worship up. It's the way God made us. We are made to worship, and, and the tragedy is when we begin to worship those who we perceive to be above us. Entertainers. Just because the stage is up there does not mean they're above you. You know, celebrities, just because they're on the screen, just because their face is as big as the multiplex, doesn't mean anything. And bosses, they may have authority over you, but don't worship. Leaders, teachers, with one singular triune exception. We are all either fellow servants or we're servants of those who are lost with the gospel. So we're all just servants. And we're all at level footing at the foot of the cross. We all are on a level playing field before God. Sharing this, just talking about this during our our staff meeting this morning. Reminding our staff. There's not... you, You don't... We have one boss. His name is Jesus. We have one leader. One father. One rabbi. His name is Jesus. And we look to Him and we worship Him, which is again why the angel says, worship God. Worship God. Same thing he said. In fact, look back because it's so profound. It's my favorite verse in the Revelation. Chapter 19, verse 10, when John fell down to worship. Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He is what it is all about. He's above you. He's above me. Worship up and worship Him. Everyone else is right here. Verse 10 of chapter 22. And He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So why do people do that? Do not seal up. Daniel the prophet was told to seal up. Daniel chapter 12. Seal this up until the end of time. Why? Because it wasn't for his day. It wouldn't be fulfilled in his day. It's been fulfilled now. Seal it up then, Daniel. It's not for you. Let me ask you this. Is Revelation for today? We've been looking at this for nine months. Is this applicable and appropriate and relevant to today? Then don't seal it up. Don't stop talking about it. Be like Brandy, our women's director. She's a nut for this stuff. Sorry, call you out, Brandy. You should see her. She sits over there on the couch and we'll be talking about some things and something prophetic will come up or or something related with Revelation will come up and she just starts getting giddy. You just see every fiber of her being just gets excited. End times, prophecy, woohoo! And she's not crazy. In fact, if you know Brandy, she is, and happy birthday, Monday was her birthday. If you know Brandy, she is stable. She's stable in the Lord. Someone's got to be in that marriage. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Jim. Bro. But there is a stability in not sealing up the prophecy of this book. Don't fear that by sharing what you've learned in Revelation and what God has spoken to you in Revelation, don't fear that this is going to put you out on the fringe. It's going to put you right in the will of God. Because by His Spirit, He proclaims in this book, do not seal it up. 
Amos chapter 3, verse 8, again, a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? you have any other choice but to share what you've heard? This is a divine imperative. And I speak that as a pastor who does not understand. I love, I have compassion for, but I do not understand pastors who refuse to teach revelation. This is a divine imperative. I don't understand believers who fear or avoid this book. Well, it's difficult to understand. I disagree, but even if it is, then you need to pray a little harder and dig in a little deeper. I don't understand those who foolishly call the revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, allegorical, irrelevant, or impractical. Don't seal it up. Verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. And the one who's righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Is God saying He wants wrongdoers to be wrong and filthy to be filthy? Yes. That's exactly what He's saying. I don't understand. Listen, if all of these things don't convince a person to fall into the open arms of Jesus Christ, nothing will. And no other book more clearly conveys the choice between righteousness and filth. And you got to decide. Because God does not have any use for the lukewarm fence sitter. you got to choose righteousness and giving your life to Jesus in a lifestyle that proclaims His truth or choose filthiness. But don't try to play the odds. It will not work with God. It's one or the other. Make the choice. Because after these things, nothing else will change your mind. Make your choice. Verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. What have you done? (laughs) What have you done? I haven't done enough. I didn't ask that. What have you done? Because, you know, the truth is, Jesus is bringing rewards. And the truth is, whether you realize it or not, you do what you believe. Some of you, and and I could call people out, I'm not going to call anybody out on this, but some of you have done so much more in your lives for Jesus than you have any idea. You really don't know what you've done. I haven't really done anything. You know what? By faithfully believing in Jesus Christ and following Him, you have done far more than you realize. And Jesus knows. And He's going to be rewarding these things. And you're going to be sitting there getting rewards for it going, I I didn't think I was doing anything. You were faithful. Well done. Good and faithful servant. And He says, my reward is with me. I'm giving rewards away. I'm handing out crowns and wreaths. and I don't even know what all the rewards will look like. I know rewards are coming. And I am coming to render to every man according to what he has done. Now I'm changing a theology on this, so listen for a second. This speaks to two people. This speaks to the non-believer who wants to be judged by their works. I will render to every man according to what he has done. So if you come to me without faith in me, if you come to me and you stand up and say, I want you to open books. I want you to look at my deeds. And based on my deeds, let me into heaven. 
Jesus says, I'm coming to render to every man according to what He has done. And He will open books, and for the non-believer, He will open books that will clearly show there is no entrance into New Jerusalem without faith in Jesus Christ. So I believe he, in this statement, he is directing that to those who think they want to be judged by their goodness. I will render to you based on what you've done. But to the believer, these are gifts. These are rewards. These are things he's going to give. And again, I can't even tell you because I don't know, but these are not rewards of salvation. He's not talking to the believer, to the follower of Jesus. He's not talking about being saved or not being saved. Because you're not saved by what you've done. You're saved by grace. By faith in the grace of God. And so that's our salvation. This is not about salvation. No, for the believer, my reward's with me. I'm going to dole out rewards. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And that is for Christians, and that is post-salvation. What do you mean? I mean, that's after the rapture. Sometime in there. I don't know the exact timing of it, but we will appear before the Bema seat. Some of you Bible students, you've heard that phrase, the Bema Seat. It is a huge dais. I finally saw the Bema Seat in Corinth a couple of years back. It's amazing because it's not what I thought. I've described it before. The Bema Seat is it's that it's like that tiered uh, dais that Olympians will come up to, and they receive the gold medal and the silver medal and the bronze medal. I, I you know I think I would want gold or bronze because bronze, hey, you got a medal. Gold, you got it all you won. Silver, you were that close. (laughs) I don't want a silver. But so that's I I always kind of thought about that three tiered dais. No, no. The Bemis seat is probably ten to twelve feet high. Huge. It's it's there in, in Corinth today. We stood beneath it. We had Bible study. In fact, I think we did Second Corinthians five right there. And and the judge, the procurator, the governor would stand up on the dais, the judgment seat, and he would pronounce judgment on things. But every couple of years at Corinth, they had the Isthmian Games, kind of like the Olympics for that region, and they would dole out, they would give out rewards. And the, the victors and the athletes would come marching up to the dais, and they would hand these things down. It was a great honor. They could come up on the dais and be offered the wreath or the, the laurel. And so they would, they would be given these gifts and rewards. And Paul says, we're going to do that. We're going to stand before the judgment seat, the bima in the Greek. Mounted by steps is what bima means. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now he's not saying only one of you is going to receive the prize and the rest of you all, you're out on your ear. He's saying, no, the idea is run as if there's only one prize. Run to win. Don't run to be, oh, i got to play. I want a silver. No. You want gold. Run for the gold. He says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. And they do so to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable one. So there will be rewards of service. Verse 13. Jesus continues, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That is the character, the the letter O, the letter Omega. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Only one thing gets the sin out of your robes. Only one thing washes your robes clean. You know what it is. It's the blood. It's the blood. It is the perfect cleansing agent. Oh, not anyone's blood. It is the blood of Jesus. It's the only blood that's pure to clean. Leviticus 17, verse 11, God said, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. That is covering, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. But atonement, the atoning blood of the animal sacrifice only covered. That's what atonement means. It covers it up for a time, for a season, until Jesus came and shed His perfect blood. And then Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 tells us to Him who loves us, and released us from our sins by His blood. And He's made us to be a kingdom priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's the blood. Wash your robes in the blood. Come to Jesus and trust in His blood to save you because your blood is never clean enough. It's got to be His. And in verse 15... Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying outside. Outside. Outside where? So so are you saying that just outside the gates of New Jerusalem, all these vile people? No. No. The word outside here does not mean outside the gates or floating outside this reality. In fact, the word outside in the Greek is exo. And exo literally translates away from. Excluded from. With all seriousness, this is a veiled reference to the lake of fire. Outside indicates away from New Jerusalem. There's only one place away from New Heaven, New Earth, New Jerusalem. That's the lake of fire. Ultimately, it's going to be one or the other. The river of life or the lake of fire, your, your call. The river of the water of life flowing eternally or the lake of fire that will burn eternally. And so on Sunday, we looked at a very similar list back in Revelation 21, verse 8. He already mentioned the sorcerers. We talked about them. The sexually immoral, we talked about. Murderers, we talked about. Idolaters, we talked about. What about dogs? Because outside are the dogs. I mean, is Lassie lost? Toto terminated. Leanne, is Scooby-Doo Scooby gone? Dogs are not the point. You dog lovers, and I'm one of them, don't worry about this. That's not what he's talking about. So there will be dogs in heaven. Let's not even go there. But first century Jews use the word dogs to talk about pagan unbelievers. Outside are the dogs. In the New Testament, it gets even sharper. Because in the New Testament, dogs refers to false teachers. Note that. Outside of God's beautiful, perfect, eternal reality for our eternal existence, outside of that, excluded from that, are the false teachers. And I just encourage you all, and I'm not going to name anybody right now, be careful with who you listen to, and myself included. 
be careful that you don't just accept the words of a teacher because you're used to the sound of their voice. Lana Lindbeck's here. I happen to know that Lana listens to my teaching at night before she goes to bed because I put her right to sleep. (laughs) Don't listen to teachers because you're used to them. And, oh, well, I can trust this guy. You only trust him as far as that teaching. Okay? Keep your Bible open. Test what you're told. Make sure what is being said is right. Because... Every single human teacher is fallible. And, and even the teacher with the right heart. And I think I got one, but, but I can be wrong. Or as I remember way back in happy days, Fonzie used to say, I can be wrong. <laughs> Sometimes I can get this <laughs> Don't trust the teacher. Trust the Word. Trust the Word. Test the teacher. Because outside are the false teachers. Jesus, Jesus said, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine. They'll trample them under feet or under their feet and they will turn and tear you to pieces. That's what false teachers do. Matthew chapter 7 verse 6. Paul said, Philippians 3 2, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Literally those who tell you it's what you do that gets you saved. Beware. It is grace that gets you saved and nothing else. John ends the list here of verse 15 with everyone who loves and practices lying three times. We pointed this out Sunday three times. He calls out lying. In all three of the final sin lists, if you want to call them that, all three of those lists end with lying. But this one is even slightly different. He says everyone who loves and practices Lying. And brothers and sisters, this is the culture of the world. This is the painful reality of the world that we live in. It is a world, I'm telling you, man, it is a world of deceit. Where society is flowing, where the nations are going, is deceit and lies. It is not true. And when everybody's saying, oh, it's not that, it's it's fine. No. This is truth. And if it doesn't coincide with this, it is deception. And we live in a world that, and and this to me is, is what we see vastly increasing in the sin of our culture and the world is the practice of deceit. The self deceit. The loving of this. I, you know, in my heart of hearts, I probably know this isn't true, but I really like it, so I believe it for me. And deception is rampant in our world. Jesus warned the Pharisees, who are supposed to be teachers of truth, standard bearers for Israel. He warned these guys who did not believe him. He said, John 8 44, Jesus' words, You are of your father the devil. And you do not want to do the desires. Oh, or no. He says, you want to do the desires of your father. You want to be involved in the deception. That's what you want. That's what you're living for. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is, listen, there is no truth in him. Which tells me where there's deceit and lies, that's where he is. Because that's all he is. 
There's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus laid it out and laid into the Pharisees. And you might say, man, did he just not like those guys? Truth is, he deeply loved them. Think about that. Jesus loved the Pharisees. How do you know? Because He wept over them in Jerusalem. Jesus loved the Sadducees. He didn't even believe in resurrection, which is why they were Sadducees. <laughs> you just can't let that one go. You know, got to say it. He loved them. Which is why He said what He said. Sometimes that's exactly what it takes. When the lie has overtaken, when the lie has entrenched, when the Pharisees standing there looking at Jesus Christ, their own Messiah, and denying Him, all that's left is to say, you are a lie, you're a father, follower of your father, the liar and the father of lies. And all you want to do is what Satan wants you to do. And he calls them out because he loved them. And because he loves us so much, he has to speak the truth in love. And we've seen this throughout the Revelation. Glorious moments of grace and rapture and heaven and, and blessing contrasted with horrific moments of judgment and wrath and the lake of fire. Why? Because God loves you too much to avoid any of the truth. And He's given it to us. And while all these things, by the way, note this, while all these things did not come down on that generation... Every generation ends. Listen to me quickly. Soon. When Jesus said back in verses 6 and 7, He sent His angel to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place, and behold, I am coming quickly. My friends, every single thing in the Revelation has been imminent for every generation for 2,000 years. Do you hear what I'm saying? Someone in the first century reading of the Revelation or coming into the second century because it was the end of the first century, but someone receiving, one of the, the churches receiving the Revelation and reading through it. For that church 2,000 years ago, their end was imminent because they would only live as long as that generation. And then the choice is over. Jesus could not come. I believe Jesus is coming anytime. I really do. Because I look around and I, sit, I read the signs and they are absolutely clear. But Jesus could put it off for another 200 years. How long does that give you? 10? 20? 50 more years? How long do you think you're going to live? This is soon and quickly for you and me. It's imminent. As it was for the Pharisees, this is imminent for every man every woman. I'm going to stop there. We'll finish out the rest on Sunday. But I want to finish and say this one last thing. Revelation 22 gives, 21 and 22 gives beautiful descriptions. And we see this new Jerusalem. And I encourage you, especially if you're discouraged, go back and read it. This is your address for eternity. Read it over. Think about it. Try to imagine it. But in this beautiful picture, we see two specific descriptions of landmarks, if you will, in our future home. We see a river and a tree. And the biblical reality is that it is therapy. 
Therapy for eternity, but my friends, the river and the tree are therapy right now. This is, this is the New Jerusalem health plan for today. And you can sign into it. You can enjoy this therapy of the river and the tree. Psalm 1, which reads, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. You know what? He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Father, you've given us such a beautiful picture. Introduce to us this remarkable reality of of the river and the tree. And I can't wait to scoop up the water and pick the fruit. I cannot wait, Lord, to be in that place of eternal peace and, and provision and purpose. And sometimes I sit and wonder, Lord, what's my job going to be? I don't care if I'm carrying out the trash. I'll be so thrilled to be there. And you have this glory that is laid out ahead of us. Father, I pray for our fellowship that we at the bridge will be like a tree planted by streams of water. And I pray for every man and woman in this room tonight. We will be like trees planted by streams of water, yielding fruitfulness in season. Doing the things that we see our Father doing. Behaving the way we do because we love Jesus. Minds set on the Spirit, not on the flesh. Hope held out for this true and real future that is coming. Father, I I ask that You would, by Your Spirit, flow through us to produce fruit that others will eat of. Fruit that will bring people to faith in Jesus. Fruit of love and joy and peace. Patience, goodness and kindness. Gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Real Holy Spirit fruit. Lord, may we be trees that yield this because we are planted by the and in and with the Spirit. And because we, Lord, we, we are nourished by Your Word. And I pray one final thing tonight, Lord. I know we've got one more teaching in Revelation on Sunday, but I pray that this will change us. I pray, Father, it will change us one way or another, bringing us nearer to Jesus, stronger in faith, bolder in our commitment, more courageous to follow, more established in the truth and and overflowing with Your grace. I ask that Your Word would change us.